When we show up in that community, whatever it is, we want to be contributors and not consumers. We want to bring something to the table. Why? Because the image of God seems to be saying, you need to be creating order out of chaos. You need to be doing something. The image of God is very active doctrine. It's not passive. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to Disillusioned, Distracted, and Discontent. We're into part five of a six-part series from Pastor Paul Twiss. This series is from Pastor Paul's teaching at Grace Community Church's Sundays in July seminar. In prior series segments, Pastor Paul took us through nine issues that characterized our culture, ranging from consumerism to, quote, living only in the now. Ironically, when leaders and educators concern themselves with the past, it's about things over which we should feel guilty. Similarly, they pronounce gloom and doom over our future about the coming climate, Armageddon. Christians, says Pastor Paul, have every reason to resist this thinking and behavior. Today and tomorrow, Pastor will shift his thoughts to the antidote for these issues undermining gospel preaching and discourse in our churches. The reality, we are to think deeply and act upon God's ultimate job description for us, stated in Genesis chapter one, quote, let us make man in our image to have dominion, end quote. Here's part five of disillusioned, distracted, and discontent. It's not simply that the image of God should drive us towards community. I think we could even start to think through the way, the manner in which it drives us towards community or the, ma- the manner in which we should conduct ourselves. Specifically, we want to drive ourselves towards community in such a way that we are contributors. When we show up in that community, whatever it is, we want to be contributors and not consumers. We want to bring something to the table. Why? Because the image of God seems to be saying, you need to be creating order out of chaos. You need to be doing something. The image of God is very active doctrine. It's not passive. You have to be doing something to successfully bear the image of God. So you don't show up as a consumer. You show up as a contributor. A few months ago, the post upon which our mailbox sits broke. Uh, We have one of those arrangements where there's maybe five mailboxes on this one post. And the post, I don't know how old it was, broke. I didn't know anything of the fact it had broken. The reason being, I was out at work, and by the time I'd come home, our neighbor a few doors up, who is not a believer, had taken it upon himself to fix the post for the benefit of the whole street. I saw a shiny new post, and I asked Laura what happened, she explained, and I went and thanked the man, and I thought, he's bringing something to the table. He is resisting the tendency that you see so often today, which is to say, it's not my problem. It's not my problem. Uh, There's a quote that I'll often give to my students when they come and ask me questions. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, the former British Prime Minister, she once said, I want people that bring me solutions and not problems. And, And that's just my refusal to answer their question in the moment. But I think it's a good rule to live by, that you want to be somebody who brings solutions and not problems. You want to be someone who contributes rather than consumes. And I think there's an imaging of God in that contribution. 
Now, there's another implication, I think. Last week, we talked about this lack of virtue, that society is not exercising self-control, and that's not a good thing. And in large measure, it is because of our preoccupation with the idea of freedom, misconstrued. I was grateful last week, somebody came up and pointed out that actually the way in which we use freedom today is really just licentiousness, which the Bible condemns as a sin. Uh, And we just substitute that for the word freedom, and it's wrongly used. Apart from our preoccupation with misunderstood freedom, I think another reason why we're not exercising self-control these days is because we have no end goal in sight. So society has no idea where it's headed. We don't know what we're doing and, and why we're doing it and where we're meant to be going. When you put an end goal in sight, all of a sudden the notion of self-control becomes a lot easier. So I like to, to run. That's how I try and stay in shape. And, you know, I have to get up really early to run because it is just so hot here. And it gets so hot so early. And I just get really sunburnt. So if I'm going to go on a really long run, I have to get up really early. And it's really hard to do. And so what I'll do often is I'll just enter myself into a race. I'll pay some money. I'll enter into a race. It's six months away. It's miserable to run that race without having trained. So because it's now on the calendar and I've paid some money for it, all of a sudden that self-control of getting up super early to run just becomes a whole lot easier. When you understand that you have an end goal, that society has an end goal, the end goal being that the earth would be full of image bearers, successful image bearers, then self-control becomes a lot easier. Virtue as a concept starts to reappear at the societal level. Now, I know, I understand, that's a very, very broad level application. Image of God, self-control, it's your responsibility to think through these things according to your particular circumstances. You know what your daily routine looks like, and you know what self-control and virtue would look like in your set of circumstances. I would say as an employee, as a bare minimum, you should be known for your proficiency. You should be known for excellence. You should be known for continually seeking to go above and beyond your job description. You should not be the person in the workplace which people look at and say, he's barely doing what we've asked him to do. You should be going way above that, even seeking to help others where you can and where it's appropriate to do so, because you want to have that imaging of God knock on effect where the, the whole earth is starting to do these things. Now, with those three simple observations, this profoundly changes our perspective on all things in life. Think about the mailman. He is not simply given the job of delivering mail into the mailbox. I mean, his job is so much more than that. He is to think through, according to that particular task, how he is to bear the image of God successfully, creating order out of chaos in such a way that he's governing where appropriate and influencing others to do likewise so that there's a knock-on effect. That's an incredible privilege and an incredible responsibility. The, the Starbucks barista is charged to do so much more than simply serve bad coffee, right? <laughs> I couldn't resist it. He has to drive himself towards community again and again and again. 
And that job presents lots of opportunity for personal interactions. But when he's tired and when he doesn't want to do that, he has to drive himself towards community because every single interaction is an opportunity to image God. And he does it in such a way that people know him in the workplace for being excellent, proficient, outstanding at his job, are going above and beyond, creating order out of chaos, taking responsibilities for the problems that are around him. Even if they do not fall squarely within his remit, he has to seek to take responsibility for the problems that are around him. And as he does so, I guarantee you, there will be something strangely attractive about the way this individual goes about his work. And unbelievers won't necessarily be able to put their finger on it, but there'll be something compelling about this man. There'll be something within everybody who observes him that says, I really like this guy. I really want to be like him in the workplace. At this point, maybe you have an objection. You might be thinking, well, hang on. There's a real problem here, and that is the problem of sin. Sin, assuming that barista is not a believer, sin is going to hinder him from imaging God successfully. Yes and no. Yes and no. Why do I say that? We need to think a little bit more carefully about how to image God, and there's more answers that the Bible gives us just by moving forward a tiny little bit in the narrative. And what we will see is that one of the major ways in which we can successfully image God is through the correct appropriation of knowledge. Through the correct appropriation of knowledge. By that I mean the correct handling of and application of knowledge. And that stands to reason, okay? So conceptually, apart from the biblical text, I think we know this to be true. Uh, I used to serve in the military. I served seven years. The first year, I was on an aircraft carrier. It was glorious. I saw a lot of the world in one year. I went to lots of different countries. After one year, they decided they did not have, have enough volunteers for the submarine service. So they pushed me down a submarine. They shut the lid, and I was stuck down there for the next six years. And I never went to another foreign country. So, yeah. so I look back on that first year, it was glorious. And, and, and one thing that we used to do is we would often visit these other countries and we would meet with the country's navy, we'd meet with the foreign navy and we would discuss policy, we would have things that we wanted to ask them, we wanted to learn from them, we wanted to learn from us. As a lowly sub-lieutenant, I was never asked the question, what do you think? I was never asked the question, what do you think? I was often asked the question, what does your captain think? I was there in those meetings as his representative. You might even say, as his image. Nobody cared what I thought. What they cared is that I knew what he thought. I had to know his view on these policies, and I had to be able to take that information and use it effectively within the meeting. So the correct appropriation of knowledge is central to the idea of successfully imaging God. We see this in the biblical text in a negative way. So after Genesis 2 comes Genesis 3 and, and the fall, God has given Adam and Eve some information. So look at chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He just gave them some information. How are you going to successfully image me, represent me, 
you need to do the right thing with this information. Genesis 3 comes along, the serpent comes in. Did God really say that? And how does Eve respond? Verse 2 of chapter 3. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She minimizes the privilege that God has given her. God said, you may surely eat, which is emphatic. She minimizes the privilege and says, we may eat. Verse 3, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. She maximizes the prohibition. God said, you may not touch of it. She maximizes the prohibition. And then he says, lest you die. And so she minimizes the judgment. God says, you'll surely die. He says, lest you die. So what's she doing? She is misappropriating the information. She's made a mess of the information that she was given. And that then leads to the fall. And ironically, the the particular pursuit within that episode is the pursuit of knowledge, independent from God, seeking to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, think carefully. What changes after Genesis 3? The image of God does not change. If it's a functional idea, this is our job description. Our job description is still in place post-Genesis 3. And that's confirmed by the other biblical references to it. When God invokes the image of God in the Noahic covenant, clearly he's saying, you're still made as my image. When Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, he's saying, you are the image of God. And then James does the same as he talks about taming the tongue. So the image of God has not changed post this 3. That remains our job description. Therefore, neither has the mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. That responsibility hasn't gone away either. In fact, Genesis 1.28 is the most attested to biblical text throughout the rest of Scripture. You're reading the rest of the Bible and you're reading with your eyes open and you look for allusions and echoes and quotations. Genesis 1.28 is the most attested to text throughout the rest of Scripture. So the responsibility definitely hasn't gone away. What has changed post-Genesis 3? It is our ability to correctly appropriate knowledge. Because of sin, we are no longer able, as we were in the garden, to take knowledge and to use it to image God successfully. That is why when you trace out a theology of knowledge throughout the rest of the Bible, so often it is closely related to the idea of sin and or redemption. So God gives Israel the law. That's a whole bunch of knowledge. This is what you need to do in order to flourish in life in Israel under me. They break the law and they're punished, so God sends the prophets. And what do the prophets say? So often, what's the, what's the particular condemnation? You do not know, you do not understand, Isaiah chapter 1. It's because you've misappropriated the knowledge that you've got yourself in the mess that you're in. There's one time in all of Israel's history where it seems like a man is correctly appropriating knowledge so as to image God. That's with the reign of Solomon. Before he goes after many foreign women, he's doing really, really well. And in those first few chapters of 1 Kings, his reign is described in Edenic proportions. There's all these echoes back to Eden, according to Solomon. Why? Because he prayed one prayer, and it was a prayer for knowledge. He said, I want a listening heart to discern between good and evil. My paraphrase, God, I want to correctly appropriate knowledge. And God grants him that prayer in abundance. He appropriates knowledge correctly, and the kingdom flourishes. 
Now, where is all of this leading us? A second implication as we think through what it means to be created in the image of God is that you have to be a lifelong learner. I'm just making it as practical as I can. You have to be somebody who is continually studying and not simply acquiring knowledge, but using it effectively so as to better image God. A few things about studying. It does not necessarily mean that you have to be a student of theology. It's a commendable thing to study, but we're not all going to be studying theology. We need people to study medicine, and to study uh, baking. We need good cakes, okay? <laughs> We need this. My observation that you have to be a lifelong learner does not necessitate that you have to be a lifelong learner of theology. Now, I do think that if you're a member of a church, a good church, you're going to be a student of theology because you show up every week and you get taught. So we will be growing in that area. The important point is not so much that you are studying God, but that all of your studies are God-centered. Now, that's the key. Whatever it is that you choose to study, you have to study in such a way that it, your studies are centered upon God, that you're studying French to the glory of God, that you're studying physics to the glory of God, that he is not absent from your study, but that he is central to your study. And that in and of itself is a skill. How does this relate to God? But you have to figure that out and you have to pursue that area of study to the glory of God because that is what counts as the correct appropriation of knowledge. And the reason that helps you to image God better is because God is the creator who created the world and we have to figure out how to live in it. So we need politicians who know political theory, but it is a tragedy to study political theory and have God absent from all of your endeavors. When you bring him into the center, now you're pursuing study in such a way that you are going to be a better imager of God. I am purposefully and knowingly going off on a tangent here because I like this topic and I want to be helpful. So, so I'm telling you, you have to be a student of something. You have to be studying. You have to be learning because it's so central to what it means to image God, the correct appropriation of knowledge. So how do, you, how do you study well? Because there is a lot of study that goes on without much learning, which is really sad. There's a lot of study that happens and very little learning to show for it. And what you want is a one-to-one -one ratio. For as much as I studied, I also learned, right? So how do you get to that? Here's my, here's my top study tips. Number one, you have to learn to ask questions. You have to learn to ask questions. We live in the information age. I'm not trying to add to the list that I gave you last week. I gave you nine points. Invariably, I am adding to that list. Okay, so here's another one for you. We live in the information age. We have more information at our fingertips than ever before. You can look up any piece of information and have it within seconds. That's not a good thing. The reason is it stops you from being curious. It stops you from thinking. It stops you from pondering. It doesn't serve you well. What's the problem with that? Socrates rightly said, you cannot educate somebody with the answer unless they are invested in asking the question. It is virtually impossible to educate somebody with an answer 
unless they themselves have a personal investment in asking the question. So if we're now not asking questions anymore, then we're not learning. We're not learning. You have to learn how to ask questions. I heard a rumor the other day. I don't know if it's true. You can turn off your phone and the world will keep spinning. <laughs> I'm going to try it and I'll let you know how it goes. It is possible to shut down distractions, to get away from that which stops you from pondering, from being curious. And then you simply flex those muscles of asking questions. Now, you have to ask good questions. There is such a thing as a bad question. There is. What makes a good question? Second study tip, ask questions that are seeking understanding over information. That stands to reason, hopefully. The why question is always better than the what question. Seek understanding over and above simply information. Secondly, seek clarification over amalgamation. What do I mean by that? It is better for you to understand one thing really, really well than for you to have a grasp on many, many things but not really understand them to any level. It is better to do one thing with excellence than to do many things badly. Pick an area, and probably your job is going to have some bearing on what it is that you study, but so also should your desires and what it is you enjoy. Pick an area and be excellent at it. Just pursue it and learn it and understand it. Be excellent at that one thing rather than trying to spin many plates and not really understanding anything. So prioritize understanding over information. Seek clarification over amalgamation. Last one, and probably the most important, I think, pursue synthesis in addition to analysis. Uh, what does that mean? Pursue synthesis in addition to analysis. We are very good at analyzing. And what it is to analyze is to take one thing and to, to question it and to probe it to the nth degree. And what analysis will do is segregate that one thing from everything else. There are so many theological articles that I read that are on one word of the biblical text. That's analysis. And that's what we're very good at. We're good at it to the detriment of synthesizing. It needs to be a both and. We do need to analyze, but at the same time, we need to th synthesize. And synthesis is the opposite. Synthesis is where you zoom out and say, how is this one thing connected to everything else? How is this one thing related to all these other things? How is there overlap here? Not only is this going to help you bring God into your area of study, but it's going to give you a fuller appreciation for life itself. And it will often explain things that the analysis does not explain. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul has pointed out that mankind's original job description, imaging God throughout creation from Genesis chapter 1, was not changed or lost even though by Genesis chapter 3 it may have looked that way. Does imaging God mean looking and thinking like Him? Over the centuries, since Moses wrote those words, debates have been lively about to be made in his likeness. Throughout God's marvelous scripture and through the voice of his son, the imitator, 
sine qua non who walk this earth, we have hope to overcome the world's self-centered plight. If you'd like to learn more about being made in the image of God and finding assurance of your salvation, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts. There, look for Pastor Paul's and Pastor Lance's relevant teachings in Romans and 1 John, among others. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Join us tomorrow for the final part six of Disillusioned, Distracted, and Discontent. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.